0: Mission Bible College, I've got Brian here with me tonight, maybe some of you remember him, he's here to steal ideas for his next sermon, but uh, hopefully it'll it'll be alright for you, but um, just, if you've got your Bibles, would you like to turn to Philippians chapter 1, and we'll be reading from verses 27 to verse 30, the end of the chapter, so from verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ that not only eh, of, on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him, since you are going through the same struggle that you saw I had. And now here, I still have. So let's just pray before we look into God's word this evening. Lord God, we thank you for the blessing of your word, Lord. We thank you that it can take effect in each of our lives, Lord. We thank you for the power that your word has and how it transforms us, Lord, day by day, Lord. So we look to you this evening. We pray that you'd open our hearts, Lord. Open my heart, open my ears to you as you speak, Lord God. I pray that you'd bless the words of my lips, Lord, and they'd be of you, Lord. I pray that together we may hear more of you, Lord, and that we may grow in, in your world, Lord, we may grow as uh, representatives, of, representatives of Christ uh, in this world, Lord. pray these things in your name. Amen. So I'm sure nowadays we all know about the struggle of, uh, with immigration. We're seeing it in the news all the time, seeing masses of people looking to enter into other countries for better lives, uh, seeking better lives. And as a result, the West... So, ourselves, Scotland, Britain, the Britain a whole, and America, we've brought in things called citizenship tests. And this is for people who want to come in, who want a better life. They've got to prove that they're sincere. They've got to prove that they want eh, to be in our country and they want to eh, show commitment to their new home. And so, ultimately, they come into the country and they prove that they're going to live eh, in line with the cultural norm, and they're going to live eh, by the standards set, By the government. So now, as we read Philippians, we see the same sort of uh, phrasing with Paul as he as he writes to the Philippians. He says, uh, "Conduct yourselves." So he's talking to the Philippians, who very well know the the customs of the colony that they live in. They're living in a Roman colony, so they they're facing uh, standards set by the government. They're not living maybe in their own way, but uh, they are living by the standards set. And so as Paul begins with this phrase, conduct yourselves, this comes from the root term which means live. And this only occurs twice in the book of Philippians, uh, to live in this sense. And what he's saying is to live as a free citizen of the state. And so as he addresses the Philippians, he's not saying to live as a citizen of the Roman colony, but he's saying to live as a citizen of heaven. They are Christians, they've been saved by the work of Christ, and so they have to live as citizens of heaven. Uh, Now clearly this phrasing meant so much more to the Philippians here. Uh, They've been adopted by Christ, they've been brought in. They've been brought in from a state of spiritual death into a state of spiritual life. They've been given a new home. And now Paul, what he's saying is that you've got to live in a way that shows us you've got to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And so today I'd like to say to you that as Christians we have responsibilities. Just like these Philippians, they went into this culture and they... As they became Christians and as they were adopted into God's heavenly family, that brought with it rights and freedom, but it also brought responsibilities. And so, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we are told to live in a manner worthy of, Paul says that we must live in a manner worthy of this. And what he's saying is that we must accept these responsibilities as we have as Christians. And as to what this gospel is, uh, we find the answer in Isaiah. He says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So what he's saying is while we were once lost, while we were once dead, once, while we, while, once we were separated to God, but now we are alive in him, he sent his perfect son, Jesus Christ, he sent his only son to live with us, and not only live amongst us as sinful, he sent us, he sent to us him who would die for our sins. So he, he mixed with us, he mingled with us, and yet he died for us, And having risen from the dead, he defeated sin and death. And yet, as God's creation, we turned our back on God. We said, you're the creator, but we want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with you as the creator. And yet God says, he says in the book of Isaiah, he says, come, let us reason together. And despite our disobedience, despite our ignorance, God brought us in. And he saw that it was fit to drop our punishment and yet bring us into a relationship with him. And that is what the gospel is. And that's what Paul is saying when he says, live in a manner worthy of this, just as you've been brought forth, live in a manner worthy of this. So tonight, with that in mind, I'd like to bring forward three points, three characteristics that Paul associates with the church as to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says we must be a united church, a fearless church, and a suffering church. So if you look at verse 27 with me, he says we must stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Now, this command to stand firm is used often by Paul through different letters. He says to the Corinthians, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be strong. To the Thessalonians, he writes, we really, uh, for now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. And so this is a common theme for Paul when he's addressing various Christians, he says to stand firm. But when he's addressing this group here, the Philippians, we are not sure what they're to stand firm against. But... Uh, it must have been hostility of some kind it must have been church hostility of some kind oppression and opposition coming in and making its way into the church and now as we consider the, the world that the Philippians lived in we're aware that uh, social class and status and ethical values they were all of massive importance to these people and we can see that even now today we see that even in the church we're in this bubble of materialism maybe it's different here, I don't know but I know for myself when you go to church and you see people and you see the status that they have and I know I'm a culprit office. You see the status that someone has, and yet you choose to mingle with other people, and you choose not to mingle with certain people. You create barriers in your attitudes with people, and you you just don't mix with them, you don't mingle with them. And whether or not it's because of differences in your opinion, you don't make an effort to mix. And yet this is what Paul is targeting. He says this unity that they're struggling with is an issue that's stopping them from targeting oppression in the church. This is stopping them from dealing with it, to be in disagreement, to not be together in perfect unity and pure fellowship with one another. This is stopping uh, them having an effect on the oppression. And so while again, while we're not certain of their oppression, we are well aware of our own. Every day we see government, government efforts to stamp down in the church. Maybe you're seeing, I don't know, their Putting church, they're putting Christian life down on the ground, and they're raising up other religions. They're raising up other religions. We're seeing that every day, other systems. We're seeing this all the time in the news, especially in the government at the moment. And ultimately, this is the work of the devil to come in and to. This is schemes to target the church. And in reality, what Paul is saying here, in light of this, Paul is saying, if we're not of one mind, he says here, if we're not of one man, as if we're not as one man standing then how much we will struggle to tackle this worldly opposition, how much we will be, able to, unable to, will be unable to fight it, as long as we are not coming together, mixing and being strong as one family together. For the sake of the gospel, or in Paul's words here, he says, for the faith of the gospel, we must be a unified community. And as long as we have this opportunity to proclaim the message, to proclaim the truth, eh, as long as we have this opportunity, we will equally face hostility for this reason. And so in standing firm, we must reflect the true nature of the gospel. We must put aside our differences, put aside any problems that we have with each other and come together because this will show the true light of the gospel in our hearts. This will work its way out and people will see this. And so we will be able to withstand the opposition. We must be united. Secondly, Paul highlights that we must be a fearless people. In verse 28, if you look again, he says, Without being frightened in any way of those who oppose you, so for the Philippians, whatever opposition they faced, this was a source of grief. This was a source of fear for them. And we don't know what they faced, but it did terrify them. Uh, and we ourselves can be fearful. We, at home, I know if I'm reading the news or hearing of opposition in the world, I look at the church in North Korea, or I look at the church in communist countries, and you see that they are being targeted by ungodly, ungodly ruling, ungodly powers, and it's crushing the church. And yet here, Paul is saying, do not worry. And this is a struggle for many of us as Christians, when we're told, do not worry, we're told, rather, be fearless. Christ himself teaches us in John's Gospel, he says, if they persecuted me, they will, also, they will persecute you also. We know as believers, we will face aggression for our faith. And so why are we not to worry? Look again at his word, he says, it is a sign of their destruction and a sign of our salvation. We're told in the Bible, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. While efforts may be made to try and tear us down, to try and tear down our faith, try and ruin it for us and somehow destroy our faith, we have the promise that nothing will be able to separate us from God. And whatever attempt is made, God has promised that he will hold us securely forever. No matter what they do, we have the assurance that we will be held, we will prevail. Our persecution is a sign of our salvation. And not only will we triumph, but again, God says that enemies will be destroyed. For as long as we persevere, this will be a sign to our opposition that their attempts are futile, they are not worth it. Our confidence and our faith will be a demonstration of both our salvation and the doom which is inevitable for our, for our adversaries. And I'm not sure if all of you are Christians here tonight, uh, maybe you are, but as we think of Christians out there, Uh, who are, as we think of non-believers, should I say, out there, who maybe attend church, who maybe even have a respect for God or trust that he is real. I have to say that this salvation is not your own or this salvation is not their own for those who do not believe. This hope is not for you. Jesus himself states that whoever is not with me is against me. And so maybe you do come to church, maybe you're here regularly, or maybe you're here and you believe that God is real but yet you're not with God because you have not put your faith in him, because you have not repented. God says that you're not with him. And so we've read the result of this. He says that those who are not found with him, those who do not repent, the end is their destruction. And that's the truth. It's harsh, but it's the truth. So let us be united. and Let us be fearless. Finally, Paul says that we are to be a suffering people. In verse 29, he says that we have not only been granted to believe on him, but we have also been called to suffer for him. Paul knew exactly what it meant to suffer for God. At this point in time, he was in prison in Rome, awaiting his death. And still his call to believers was to be active in their suffering. But why are we to be active in this? Read it again. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ. So we sing a suffering for Jesus. Suffering as a Christian is a gift from God. A commentator on Philippians writes, Therefore, there is no accident in their suffering, nor is it a mark of divine punishment, as though God were angry with them. On the contrary, it is a sign of his favour. Not only does suffering for Christ's sake fulfil the purpose of God for his people in the world, it comes as a gift of his grace. But do we we honestly look at suffering as a gift? Do we think that our friends, our family, who put us down for being Christians, do we think of the world outside that puts us down for being a church, do we look at this as a gift, do we look at it as as if God has favoured on us that we're suffering and we don't, I don't think, I don't believe all of us do, I know I don't Uh, when I feel my friends or my family or whoever maybe looking down because of my beliefs, I don't feel that's a favourable sign from God and yet here at the centre of God's word, at the centre of what Paul is writing, I'm supposed to be joyful in this. The answer is presented in, Paul's, in Peter's letter, in his first letter. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. So let us embrace suffering, not only because Christ suffered, but because we are called to follow him. And if we're called to follow him, if we're to walk that road to Calvary, then surely we must be willing to suffer for him. It will, again, it will be an outward sign of our salvation. It'll be a sign, as Peter says, that our body is done with sin. It'll be a sign that we're under the safe protection of God. And so, if we're to stay committed to Christ, let us be active. Let us expect suffering in our walk day by day. So, how do we live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? How do we live as citizens? How do we live knowing that we are bound for heaven? We live in unity, we live fearlessly, and we live in suffering. We're to to live as one man. And to do this, we must put aside our differences. We must put aside any favoritism or exclusive friendships that we have within the church. We must put aside anything that will hinder our ability to come together and stand together. When we do face opposition, let us be bold. Let us be bold because we know the outcome. We know that while we face trials and hardships, eh, we are bound for heaven. We know that we're bound for an eternal glory with God, where we will face no more hardships, we will face no more trials, and let us embrace suffering, because we know that we will be falling, as long as we embrace suffering, we know we are on that right path, we know we, know we are following closely behind Christ, as long as we are suffering for his sake. And if you look right at the start of this passage again, look at the very start of verse 27, Paul tells us when we should pursue this lifestyle, he says, whatever happens, so just as he was in prison, he knew that whatever came his way, he had to live in this manner. And so today for us, no matter what we face, whether it's big or small, let us remember the walk of Jesus. Let us follow him on his way to the death on the cross. Let us remember his death on the cross so that we will be able to better reflect the, light, the love that he shows and the, the light that he offers. And let us say, whatever happens, I will live in this way. And in following that work, we're told elsewhere in the Bible that God will carry out; He will complete the work that He began in us. And in following Him, this is a, an assurance for us as we face these things, as we, as we become joyful in these things, as we accept them more and more. And he will continue that work, and we will surely experience the joy of that. And so, just as we're be, awaiting to be transformed perfectly when we reach heaven, as we're being transformed slowly uh, into the image of Christ. Uh, we must live in a manner, whatever happens, whatever comes our way, do not forget that we have to live in this manner because we have the assurance. And again, for those of you or maybe your friends or family who don't trust Christ, do not hesitate. We've already read the outcome, we've already read of the hope that we have as believers and the destruction that awaits those who do not stand with Christ. There is no hope for the future for them. There is no uh, peace. There may be peace and happiness in in the life that they live, in the life that you live. There may be some sort of comfort that you have, but this will not last for those that do not stand with Jesus. This will be the end. Our life is not an easy life. It is not a simple life. It It is a life full of hardships and struggles. But let us live because we have the assurance of what we are awaiting in heaven. Let us be united. Let us be fearless and let us be suffering so that we may not only be worthy of the gospel, but that we may live to reflect the glory of God and so that we may come so that others may see that something that's missing and something that they want before it's too late. Amen. I think we'll close with a final song. Is it number 243? Uh, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord. And if it's possible, could we just sing verses 1, 4, 5, and 6 of this final hymn?